HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Meant to Be Eaten. I am your host, Andrea Ween, and joining me on the phone today is, is Krishen, Krishnendu Ray, professor of food studies at NYU and author of two books, The Ethnic, Ethnic Restaurateur and The Migrant's Table, Meals and Memories in Bengali American Households. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So to start, I want to set the stage on your very unique background. Can you talk a bit about growing up in Odisha and what it was like to grow up among Hindu-Muslim violence and your first experience, really, of using food to cross a cultural divide? Yeah, so uh, my mother is Odia. Uh, Odia is a linguistic group, uh, little, uh, and my father is uh, Bengali. Uh, and the two languages, Odia and Bengali, are a little like, uh, say, Italian and Spanish. Uh, so they're related, uh, but they're quite different. And so, and that always, whenever you have a different linguistic culture, it also probably means there is culinary difference uh, between the two communities. And so I was growing up in uh, the Indian state of Odisha, which is, uh, for your listeners to get a sense, it is south of uh, Calcutta, south of Bengal in the peninsula. And then uh, my father was a salesman, and uh, we went, he was transferred every uh, two years. And so I moved from Odisha, uh, went to high school in Bengal, and then a neighboring state called Bihar, and eventually I ended up uh, going to college in Delhi, Delhi University, where I did my undergraduate work, and uh, then I came to the U.S. Uh, for my graduate work for Ph.D., and to uh, give a quick sense of uh, my social world, uh, I would say the first time I used a fork and uh, I, I ate kebab was when I was in Delhi. Um, so this is just uh, Delhi. I was in 11th grade and 12th grade. 
and uh, for me the fork was kind of a kind of a global cosmopolitan instrument that had to get used to i had never had a, a, a wine before i have had never had uh, aged cheese uh, like south asia you have uh, paneer you have what in bengal bengali is called chana uh, fresh cheese, but you never had aged cheese. So those were very clearly a kind of a cosmopolitan world of difference. And then on the other side, uh, I'd never had a kebab, which was seen as urban, uh, often uh, part of the Muslim neighborhood. And in Delhi specifically, it was part of, uh, I used to walk by that neighborhood uh, when I used to go to high school. Uh, it's called uh, Nizamuddin. Uh, and in Nizamuddin, around a mosque, uh, a substantial Muslim population, and also there would be street food and street vendors. And one of the important things they would vend would be a kebab. And as a kind of a middle class, a lower middle class Hindu boy, uh, all that was kind of freighted heavily with this idea of Muslim uh, masculinity and uh, etc. So for me, uh, in a sense, eating the kebab was, um, I, I have subsequently written about it a little. I've read about it. It's a great story. Yeah, the way to think about uh, culinary difference and what difference it makes. At home, you mentioned your parents came from two different culinary backgrounds and mm -hmm. two different languages. What were you eating at home? So I would say, I would say I would I was probably uh, uh, of course I was eating food at home like everybody does when you grow <laughs> up you don't you don't name it you just eat food. And, uh, but then when I step out, when I, of course, and I travel, uh, now, like I'm in the United States, I would say I was eating a variant of Indian food. Of course, that became evident to me only after I left India, because in India, it's not a big deal because everyone is eating Indian food. So, <laughs> so you don't name it. And so I would say, looking back, it's a regional variant of Indian food. I would more specifically uh, call it Odia Bengali food. I'll give you an example. So uh, my aunt used to make something called chocolate pita. Chocolate pita, that's in Odia. Chocolate pita would be uh, familiar to some of your uh, listeners as what has subsequently been come to be seen as uh, dosas, uh, which comes more from uh, Tamil Nadu, further south in India. So chocolate pita, but without being stuffed with the kind of the potato pea mash that it is stuffed with, just would be a kind of a sour, slightly fermented, I would say a pancake. Uh, with uh, eaten usually with a side of like a coconut um, curry leaf, mustard, chutney, and a variant of a slightly sour uh, dal. Um, so this is very uh, clearly kind of cooked every day, pre-modern, uh, non-sweet, uh, kind of a fermented food that is crucial to I would say close to the peasant EDM almost everywhere in the world, especially in India, and especially in the part of India I come from, which is Eastern India, which is Odisha and Bengal. Do you remember your parents, were there any conflicts at home about what to cook for dinner? Did they prefer the foods that they had grown up with, or mm. was it really a melded household? It was... Um Good question. Uh, maybe I should poke around in it uh, with a few more questions and, <laughs> and, and see if there was a conflict. Conflict around food was not apparent, partly because uh, 
though my mother and my father come from two different kind of a linguistic and spatial communities, uh, originally from Bengal and Odisha, but both my parents grew up about in two households about 100 meters down from each other on the same street. Uh, and this was in Odessa, in a small town called Balasore, on the east coast uh, of Odessa, in the east coast of India. And um, and I think the other, uh, that might be one of the reasons where there was a, a kind of a, a diasporic version of Bengali cooking um, that uh, my mother had learned to cook. And maybe that's the second part why uh, we, I did not witness conflict about what to cook and what to eat. Uh, and it's two sides to it. And one is my dad had no idea how to cook. He, he's, he's 82 years old now. He doesn't even know how to boil water. And that's one of the few privileges of being a middle-class Indian uh, male uh, in India even today, where most of the cooking is done by what I, what I call the uh, servant-wife complex. So most of the work is done by servants uh, for middle-class folks, uh, and, uh, but it is directed by the wife, in this case, my mother, and my mother learned to cook. Uh, we, we were not uh, affluent enough to have a full-time servant most of the time. We had a part-time. Uh, and sociologists in India draw a line uh, through the social world in India, a little like what it was in the United States, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, which is people who have servants and people who are servants, which is a clear class line. Uh, my mom uh, learned how to cook uh, after marriage, which was quite unusual, and quickly picked up basically the repertoire of my grandmother, my paternal grandmother. And so she ended up cooking the stuff that my father would have been familiar eating. So in some ways, our food was, I think, more nominally um, Bengali. Uh, with a few uh, with a few Odia accents to it, it had more sour uh, notes to it, much stronger sour notes uh, than typical Bengali food, which tends to have much stronger sweeter notes. Do you cook now? I do. I cook about yeah. I cook about maybe four days, five days a week, with my son, uh, who's 16 year old. We cook together almost three or four days, uh, and uh, we do probably takeout one day, <laughs> one day leftover, and one day wing it. Uh, so. Do you find that you cook the food from your childhood? Hmm. Uh, I cook the food of my childhood. I would say probably one-fifth of the time. Okay. Um, so I, after I came to the U.S. Uh, as a grad student, I, uh, I eventually married an American woman who's my ex-wife now and who's the mother of my child. Uh, and uh, she already had two children. Um, so I had my stepchildren who were already used to an American repertoire, uh, mac and cheeses, hamburgers, uh, steak. Uh, so I learned to cook all that. In fact, on an everyday basis, the typical division of labor in my household was I would cook often on an everyday basis and she would cook the special meal. So I quickly picked up the the Italian-American repertoire, pastas with various sauces, and uh, I picked uh, up the very Irish uh, repertoire of, say, meat and potatoes, Irish and German. And then, uh, so today, these days, my cooking, I would say I cook about uh, maybe one or two meals that would be identifiably Indian, 
with a rice and a dal and a fish in a sauce and a sautéed vegetable. That's, I would say, typically my mother's cooking. And rest of the days, I'm cooking pasta or I'm cooking um, uh, meat and potatoes. So from my stepchildren to my, this is my third child. And uh, uh, so my food has become, in that sense, very American, a whole uh, repertoire of foods that have been absorbed into it. I want to go back to the conflict, maybe not inside the home, but outside Mm -hmm. of it, which is something that you've written about um, Uh a little bit. And I'm curious how you went from seeing this crossing of cultures as merely violent when you were a child to something that was much more nuanced. And did food play a role in that? Yeah. So I would say uh, the kebab is a good example of it. Uh, um, uh, Those of you listeners who are familiar with, uh, say, Indian, uh, both political culture and everyday culture would know that uh, India has one of the largest Muslim minorities in the world. Uh, so it's a, it's a country of approximately a billion people, uh, and it's a country of about 120 million Muslims. Uh, and so it's one of the largest Muslim countries in the world, though nominally it is a secular democracy. Mm, and uh, But the dominant culture is uh, Hindu and often vegetarian, um, though... Uh, it's a misrepresentation to think that all Hindus are vegetarian. For instance, I'm a Bengali Hindu, and most Bengali Hindus eat uh, meat and fish, meat, especially goat meat uh, and lamb. Uh, And of course, beef is taboo. That's what most people know. And so when I was growing up in eastern India, uh, meat was always carried the burden of uh, not being kind of fully Hindu, and especially, of course, uh, beef. Uh, And in the Muslim quarters, often, if not beef, buffalo meat would be sold often in various kebab forms. And... um, I was I was drawn to it simply because of the aroma and eventually when I started eating it the flavor of it uh, but there was a clear sense for me that when I was growing up Hindu fundamentalism was also becoming important and visible in India and Hindu fundamentalism was very interested as it is now in India in policing the boundaries between vegetarianism and uh, meat eating, especially beef eating. There have been recent instances of Muslims, uh, Dalits, which are outcast, uh, traditionally outcast Hindus, uh, sometimes low caste uh, Christians, being lynched uh, for eating beef or uh, uh, because of rumors about eating beef. And so when I was growing up, even from high school onward, there was kind of this emerging polarization between Hindu fundamentalists uh, and what I eventually came to see myself as a secular, uh, democratic uh, Hindu. Uh, and uh, that violence was implicated in this question of eating uh, meat. And for me, it eventually, eating kebabs in Nizamuddin, uh, became a sign of, in some ways, belonging to what I was, uh, what I was seeing as a shrinking uh, public space in India uh, of uh, of kind of a of eating meat uh, and not being uh, not being violated for it. Uh, and here I would say, recently the Indian Supreme Court has ruled that uh, the Indian Constitution 
uh, guarantees a right to privacy, which, by the way, is new in India. Uh, it is that same right under which, for instance, in the American Constitution, we have uh, women have right to access to birth control. In India, that right to privacy just recently defined is one of the things people are hoping those who are democratic, those who are secular, that what you eat uh, at home uh, or, in fact, outside uh, should not be open to policing by either by the community or by the state. But it's a very fragile, very small, very emergent right uh, that is was just asserted this year by the Indian Supreme Court. But I'm hoping that that's the pathway through which uh, kind, uh, a kind of a, uh, both a right to privacy is affirmed and a public culture of toleration, uh, which has also been part of India for the longest time, uh, becomes more uh, sustainable. Yeah, the fact that that was even not a law until very recently, it's so outside of the realm of how I grew up here in America, and mm -hmm. the privacy is kind of of the utmost concern. And so yep. it's such an interesting cultural divide to even think that that could be something that would be persecutable. Yes. So when you think back over your work, obviously you've had multiple different experiences. Are there... Or is there a central belief that you really held sacred early on in your career that's changed? A belief early on in my career that has changed. I would say one of the biggest things for me was uh, the lesson I have learned in, on working through food, and which is how exactly does food matter to people? And, uh, and uh Paying attention to, I would say, the quotidian, everyday culture and taking pleasure in it, uh, that has been a persistent lesson. Uh, uh, and that has been kind of, in some ways, revisited on me uh, a number of times. In, in, in some ways, what I mean by that is you learn a lot about a culture uh, by looking at its everyday aspect, especially food, uh, and more than, I would say, even looking at art, looking at architecture. Uh, and uh, so the ev food is part of everyday culture of attire, of language, as a window into a culture. In that sense, that is something I have learned slowly. Uh, hesitantly, and that was not available or affirmed. And it feels like a truism today, uh, but uh, I don't think it was. Uh, in fact, in the most of the uh, my family, they're still shocked and surprised that I work on something called food and that someone pays me to teach about food. Uh, they would understand if I worked in economics. They would understand if I was an engineer. They would understand even if I was an artist. But Talking about food as an everyday culture, writing about food as a profession, as a professional, is uh, still unusual and unexpected and almost unacceptable to many in my social world. So I would say that's in one direction. Um, I don't know if your question uh, got answered in that. Or no, it did. It did. Were, yeah, I think it's an interesting topic because I think food... Right now, it seems almost everyone is obsessed with it, right? There's this fever pitch. It's grown so quickly as uh, something that people want to be involved with, call themselves foodies, want to find the best restaurants and take Instagram pictures. And I think you've written a bit about this, and I'd love to get your opinion, but seeking out authentic, ethnic, and I'm using air quotes here, foods 
has become a badge of honor in a lot of ways. Yeah. Why do I you think, think that's, that's yeah. problematic? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Uh, no, I think um, uh, you're absolutely right. I, though, I mean, though I'm interested in food, I also easily tire of the pursuit of the next big thing, the next trend, uh, the next cronuts, the next uh, a hole in the wall. It's kind of there's an obsessive quality to it that is uh, tedious and tiring. And uh, which in some ways, that's why, though I'm interested in food, I hesitate to self-identify as foodie uh, because it has the same connotation as like a fashionista. So I'm so interested in everything about food and the next trend that in some ways, uh, uh, and here's the second part uh, where I kind of uh, disassociate, that all I care about is the food and not the people who are working it. So that's, I would say, probably one of my big arguments in the Ethnic Restaurateur, my book, where I say that uh, we have paid a lot of attention and we pay a lot of attention, which is what is the next best thing, what is the most authentic thing, what ethnic food we're going to eat next, etc., often uh, completely ignoring uh, the lives of people who have historically brought us that food and continue to do so. So one of my bigger arguments um, is on one side, as I said before, recognizing the importance of food culture, and on the other side, downplaying uh, every fashion trend in food culture that I think becomes extractive, exploitative, and a peculiar perverse pursuit uh, of uh, kind of a a self-congratulatory culture, which is, oh, I found this uh, hole in the wall. It has the best Mexican food. It has the cheapest taco, most authentic, uh, and uh, I got it for $1.50. That kind of a pursuit is destructive of, A, I think, good food culture, and B, the livelihoods of very people who, in fact, bring, have brought fantastic food uh, to the American public through our whole history. I show in my book, we have data from the 1850 onwards when we ask people question about their birthplace and their occupation. And that consistently shows that they were immigrants. If they were bakers, butchers, bartenders, they tend to be Irish and German and then Italian and then Jews, Eastern European Jews, and today mostly Central Asian, uh, uh, sorry, Central American and uh, South and uh, and Asian, and so um, that is my kind of a caution and skepticism about excessive embrace of the foodie culture. In your opinion, what is an example of how to enjoy a newly discovered food or cuisine without being derogatory in that same sense? Yeah, but so in some ways, I want to be careful here. I don't want to become this kind of a scolding uh, school mom <laughs> about what to eat, what not to eat, and how. I mean, people should eat whatever the heck they want to eat, and they should cook whatever the heck they want to cook. Um, but uh, if you're interested in a food culture, uh, it is, I think, useful and fun. Uh, and pleasurable to get to know where these people are from uh, and what kind of food are they cooking. I mean, when you say, say, Indian or you say Mexican, it is a little like saying Europe, you're eating European food. Mm, would that satisfy you anymore or you want to go, well, Italian and further down Italian from regional, like is it Sicilian? Is it from the Piedmont? And so specify the kind of a questions, polite 
uh, questions about what kind of food is this, what are its kind of rules if you're going to um, uh, uh, cook it. Uh, and then, as I say, you break those rules like we do with everything else. Um, but pay attention uh, and uh, familiarize yourself uh, with, uh, with a culinary culture. I would say the the basic formula is the same as understanding another language. You try to learn some of it. Uh, food is another language, uh, and uh, you, you pay attention to it. You do kind of a comparative analysis from the language you already know, uh, and you draw on that. In fact, it enables you to learn another language better if you're already literate in your own language. Similarly with food, which is uh, get familiar to what others are cooking and serving, and in the process, get familiar to where you are coming from. I think that becomes then a kind of productive dialogue so that uh, you as a consumer and you as a cook uh, is fully engaged in the process of the knowledge you carry to this exchange and the knowledge uh, and pleasure someone else brings uh, to that exchange. Uh, and so I would say the analogy is uh, a little like learning another language, understanding another linguistic culture, a culinary cultural difference uh, is in fact similar. I'm Andrea Ween, and you are listening to Meant to be Eaten. Today we are talking about authentic foods, and we will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm Andrea Ween, and you are listening to Meant to be Eaten. Today on the phone with me is Krishnendu Ray, professor of food studies at NYU and author of the books The Ethnic Restaurateur and The Migrant's Table. Krishnendu, you talk about this idea of culinary colonialism, so essentially a way of acquiring cultural capital and the idea of worldliness and cool points, I think you put it in an article, by consuming everything. So... You know, we were just talking about how to do this respectfully and in a way that doesn't deter from the people who are cooking it. But do you feel like we are more or less culturally aware than before? And is there a difference in your mind of being cultured versus being globalized? Hmm. Good question. 
I don't know um, whether I have a direct answer uh, and if there's a difference between um, globalized and cultured. One thing uh, sociologists have argued, uh, especially based on their work on music, uh, is that uh, there's an increasing uh, omnivorousness. Omnivorousness meaning we uh, consume, and in this case we eat, uh, cuisines uh, from everywhere in the world. And that omnivorousness has come to replace old-fashioned snobbery. It used to be that if you were a cultural snob and what sociologists call you had cultural capital, say you would listen to European classical music uh, at a particular point of time in American history and you will not or you would disdain um, uh, country music, you would disdain jazz. Uh, eventually, uh, jazz will enter, would enter the pantheon of those with with snob uh, cultural value, would consume certain genres of uh, music and not consume other genres of music, um, in this case, big country or pop or uh, bluegrass or et cetera, et cetera. So what sociologists have noticed, at least since about the 1970s, uh, and that probably goes back a little uh, further, is that uh, the higher your education level and higher your income level, uh, more and more Americans are becoming more omnivorous in terms of music. That, in fact, uh, or, the, or in fact, the op- they make the opposite claim that lower your education and lower your income level, you are a univore. So you are just listening to hip hop or to country or uh, to pop, uh, uh, and uh, and the higher your income and the higher your education, you are in fact listening to all the genres of music, including hip-hop and jazz and European classical. And in some ways, the old-fashioned snobbery has declined and or gone underground. And we have seen that happen with food, uh, that in fact... Uh, Uh, People are eating widely, and it has almost become impossible to say, oh, that food is terrible or that food is disgusting, a a cuisine. Uh, And this is linked partly to uh, the second development in American culture and politics, uh, which is, I think, uh, the democratization uh, that happened in American culture after the civil rights movement, which in which context it became in some ways illegitimate in mainstream society uh, to express disdain and disgust uh, towards any community of people. And these two things, on one hand, omnivorousness, which is kind of a new form of acquiring cultural capital. And the second is this democratization of uh, American culture, post-civil rights movement, has transformed, I think, the whole terrain of what we eat, what we appreciate, and how we name these things and how we comment uh, on those things. What role do you think social media has played into that? Yes, uh, social media is has been crucial, especially in the last phases, say of the let's say last twenty years or so, where I see a change in uh, I would say the media ecology, uh, where you used to have major newspapers of major cities uh, acquired a restaurant critic uh, sometime from the late nineteen fifties to about the late nineteen eighties, and they would 
they would be the gatekeepers of good taste in terms of food, what to eat, where to eat. And they mostly paid attention to the more expensive restaurants with some ex- uh, exception. What happened, I think, along with the uh, spread of omnivorousness uh, and the democratization of culture subsequent to the civil rights movement, you also had democratization of the media that we today no longer need to have a byline in a in a uh, important newspaper uh, to express our opinion about what is good to eat. Uh, and you see that, especially, of course, in the domain of it, it slowly transformed through, say, Zagat's reviews and eventually in Yelp uh, today, where, in fact, you can say anything about any place and that is recorded somewhere and other people can see it and other people decide where to eat, where not to eat um, uh, by looking at uh, Yelp reviews. So you no, no longer need to have a byline. So there has been a kind of an opening up a democratization that is interesting. And uh, on one side, I think it has made mid-market and down-market places visible in the gastronomic literature uh, on one side, which is, I think, a terrific thing and a good thing. But on the other side, it has also made the discussion quite competitive, argumentative, and shrill, uh, uh, and which, which has... Uh, uh, has a cost, uh, has a price uh, uh, to it. So social media has been crucial to both through visual media, Instagram, and through writing about uh, uh, places that are good to eat, has both opened up the world of where to eat and what is good to eat, and also made the whole field a lot more argumentative. I think, too, you could also make the argument that those white male reviewers that were being hired by the paper to do the reviews of certain restaurants and they were the end-all, be-all and the voice of, of that city or that cuisine has maybe now shifted where there's this phenomenon where elite white male chefs have come to be the faces of these ethnic cuisines that you know they've brought from other places. I would say good point there. I think they're twofold. One is that at the level of commentators and commentary and criticism has in some ways been opened up and has to engage with um, a lot of the thing, uh, many of the things that are going on uh, in the marketplace uh, on one side of it. Uh, though, again, I, I don't want to exaggerate how flat the world has become. The world has not become that flat where the New York Times restaurant critic still carries a lot of weight. And a lot of the discussion, in fact, is argumentation with uh, once the New York Times uh, restaurant critic uh, produces a critique uh, of a place. On the other side, the point you're mentioning and this is maybe, uh, I would say, the fourth point. So the first one was uh, the, the civil rights movement. The second one is omnivorousness. And the third is the media ecology. I would say the fourth is the rise of the chef uh, as a profession. And his, it is usually a he, uh, his uh, power and visibility. And uh, the most powerful American chefs today tend to be uh, male, white, or, by the way, Asian. Uh, that's, that's crucial uh, in that uh, kind of 
uh, repertoire. And uh, what what has happened with the power of the chef, I think, has now uh, uh, kind of elbowed in into the field, and which is, by the way, uh, an interesting thing in spite of the limitations, because chefs used to be considered cooks. Cooks were mostly seen as a service class uh, and did not have a signature, were not visible. We are seeing over the last 30 years uh, the emergence of a chef as uh, as uh, an authoritative person about taste, which is fantastic, which is very interesting. But like any form, uh, as I have talked elsewhere, in any uh, domain, when you professionalize it first, it also uh, sadly uh, becomes racialized in a particular way. It becomes gendered in a particular way. It has happened to college education, which is my field. It has happened to medicine. It has happened to law, where when the when the uh, occupation is upgraded and professionalized, the first thing that happens to it, in fact, is that it becomes more male and more white. Uh, and then it is subsequently uh, changed and transformed. We are right in the middle of that transformation, where in some ways white male chef uh, tend to represent, overrepresent uh, the whole field of culinary cultures in the plural. Uh, and it is uh, that is one of the downsides of the process of professionalization, but I think goes hand in hand with it. Well, I think too it goes hand in hand with what we were talking about earlier with this issue of authenticity and seeking out authentic ethnic restaurants. And mm-hmm. I think you've mentioned before, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how you think ethnic chefs are constrained by this demand for authenticity, which we do sometimes equate with cheap hole in the wall, all of these terms that aren't necessarily fair to the chefs that are trying to carry out and, and create good food. Yeah, in, in, um, in various data sets that I have shown, um, both in my book uh, and in an Atlantic piece, and I think Washington Post piece, is I have a, what I call a hierarchy of taste, a global hierarchy of taste, where I take the price data from uh, Zagat surveys as one instance, and I've done the same with Yelp data now, uh, and show that, in fact, uh, the world is not flat, uh, that we have a hierarchy of taste at the top of it are things like uh, French, uh, New American, and you have to call it New American if it's going to be expensive, uh, uh, Japanese, very interestingly, uh, and then uh, Italian and uh, Spanish is climbing up, Greek, of course, has, Greek has also been climbing up. Then you have Korean and Thai and Vietnamese, and, and at the bottom of the pile, there's a certain kind of uh, racialization of a group from Seoul to um, Indian and, in fact, Thai and Vietnamese, etc. So there is a clear uh, hierarchy of taste, and the expectation is, the what I say, there's a twofold division of the uh, of the field at the high end of it there's almost a sense that whatever the price uh, asked is legitimate to pay if it is a fantastic french restaurant if it's a fantastic italian restaurant if it's a fantastic japanese restaurant but uh, at the other end it is very difficult to charge more than 25 bucks if it is chinese or indian or vietnamese or thai or Seoul. And uh, 
and uh, my argument is that is going to change in the future, and which is related to interesting um, geopolitical dynamics and the emergence of uh, China. But right now, the field is divided between cuisines we are willing to pay, and we are willing to pay for two things, basically, in it. We are willing to pay for skilled labor, a skilled chef, and we are willing to pay for uh, fine produce, which could be local, sustainable, uh, expensive. We are not willing to pay for either of those things at the what, what I call the bottom of the market in terms of um, culinary cultures, which has typically historically been understood as ethnic food, where ethnic food is then marked by... Uh, cheapness. Uh, and of course, there's only so much you can do at 10, 12, 15 bucks uh, uh, dinner. Uh, and uh, neither can you hire uh, skilled uh, artisanal chefs, nor can you focus on um, uh, good ingredients. Hence, you end up with basically it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you end up uh, basically with very cheap food uh, with uh, be, uh, produced in an economy that depends on uh, this divide. Um, and which will be interesting also, by the way, this is a changing script. Italian food used to be at that bottom. Greek food used to be working class food as diner food, and they are moving up. And there's a racial component to that. And my argument is that, in fact, in the next 20 years, it's going to happen uh, to Chinese food. We're already beginning to see that uh, Chinese restaurants at the high end of it, and also a massive scarcity of cheap Chinese restaurant labor at the bottom of the market. Is there a way for chefs who are cooking these foods and want to expedite that process, as you said, you know, Chinese is in your mind next. Is there a way, you know, for a Vietnamese chef to, to do that in a sustainable way? Mm, I, I personally think, you know, uh, the mid-market range, uh, uh, and I think that's the place to make your mark, uh, because there's an, kind of an increasing informalization of American fine dining uh, on one hand, and then uh, you can be uh, a Vietnamese uh, chef, a Vietnamese-American chef who's cooking Vietnamese-American uh, food and get the attention of uh, those bloggers and those uh, Instagrammers who are often college students. Uh, graduate and undergraduate students who have smaller purses but more open palates. Uh, and I think that's why you often see them, these kinds of places where you have uh, around universities, around colleges, uh, places where what used to be called um, and is now unfashionable fusion kinds of foods have emerged where you have to go halfway to your, towards your customer and they come halfway towards you and they are willing to experiment a little more, uh, pay a little more for more interesting food. I, I see that happening with my students uh, extensively uh, and I see that happening in most American cities, in fact. Do you think that there's something to be gained economically for countries and the people who live in them uh, whose food has become fetishized here in the U.S.? Uh, gained as in... Um, or do you think? Gained? I think. I mean, I mean okay. economically, awareness-wise, culturally, or does it actually do more harm than good? Huh. Uh, good question. 
I see that often associated with like the state level propaganda. By the way, the Koreans, South South Korea, Republic of South Korea, is really, really interested in pushing their cuisine, and they think they can do it like they did with K-pop, like Gangnam Style, right? They kind of make it visible. It's mostly been unsuccessful, but in fact uh, has brought Korean food into a some greater visibility. The Japanese government is interested. The Thai government, by the way, is very interested. This is what has come to be called soft power, you know, pushing for soft power in a global uh, kind of a geopolitical uh, context. So what you're saying is there is a certain kind of accumulation of cultural soft power, uh, and states uh, appear to be interested and they are working on uh, try, uh, kind of trying to kind of push and upgrade their food. And sometimes it leads to um, kind of unintended consequences or mockery because, like, say, for instance, the attempt to uh, for, by the Italian state uh, to provide uh, a state imprimatur or stamp on the most authentic pizza in the Italian style. Uh, that usually backfires, uh, but states have been repeatedly interested in acquiring some kind of soft power in uh, global cultural kind of geopolitics. And uh, movies used to be the domain. Fashion is a domain. Um, advertising is a domain. Food is, in fact, becoming increasingly important to many state actors in many states in the world uh, to get some kind of visibility, which is linked uh, eventually to tourism. And because tourism is one of the largest industries in the world, and people do go to countries to eat their food. So the soft power there has a feedback loop to uh, tourist capital. This is such an interesting conversation. I know we could keep going all day, but we are unfortunately out of time. For people who want to dig deeper into these discussions, obviously they can read your book, The Ethnic Restaurateur. Where else can they look? What else should they be looking into? Yeah, so in some ways, of course, read, uh, listen to your uh, radio uh, uh, and podcast, listen to others uh, similarly, and then read some books like Lisa Heldke, the philosopher, has written some beautiful books on this whole question of uh, culinary colonialism, etc. And uh, uh, now, of course, the, I think the discussion may have become a little too shrill, um, but there's still a lot of talk that is going on. Listen to that talk. Uh, uh, read uh, some of this work and then uh, go have fun with food. Krishnandu, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You've been listening to Meant to Be Eaten. I am your host, Andrea Ween. Remember, you can follow the show on Instagram at Meant to Be Eaten, and I'm personally on Instagram at Dre Eats. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.